0: Welcome to Decisive Point, a U.S. Army War College Press production featuring distinguished authors and contributors who get to the heart of the matter in national security affairs. Decisive Point welcomes Dr. Michael Nyberg, author of Coalition Warfare Echoes of the Past, featured in Parameter Spring 2021 issue. Dr. Nyberg is the Chair of War Studies at the U.S. Army War College and authored Dance of the Furies, Europe and the Outbreak of World War I. First of all, thank you so much for being here today. We're super excited to have you. You contributed to our 50th anniversary issue, and in that issue you wrote a retrospective on an article published in our inaugural year, which was 1971, and the article was by Lieutenant Colonel James B. Agnew. Agnew analyzed the unified command model pursued by the Allies during World War I. He focused on the challenges faced by French Marshal Ferdinand Foch when he was appointed to lead a unified command of the Allies near the end of the war. So in your article, you argue the challenges manifested in this coalition just over a century ago are in some ways timeless, including the issues of sovereignty and relative expenditures of human and economic resources. Can you elaborate on that? The First World
1: War is really the beginning of what we think of as modern alliances and modern coalitions. And Foch's great challenge was to get states that had different aims and different strategic end states and different sizes and different contributions to contribute all towards one final effort. His real challenge was to get the Americans, who didn't even formally join the alliance, but kept themselves somewhat apart from it, to sort of get on side and to do the things that he thought the allies needed to do to win. He also had Italy and Great Britain as part of that coalition. So his challenge really was to try to get disparate states with disparate resources and disparate goals to all push in the same general direction.
0: That sounds like a challenge. And and I'm going to take a quick little sidebar here. You mentioned that the French in 1944 and 1945 behaved as the Americans did in 1918. One
1: of the issues, of course, is that bigger states always want to have more control over the direction of an alliance than do smaller states. So in 1914, this happened when one of the British senior strategists said, we will make wars we must, not as we wish, meaning that the British would have to shoe to French strategic aims. And the same thing is true largely in 1918, where France has by far the largest section of the Western Front, the largest army on the Western Front. So to a certain extent, the United States has little choice but to shoe to what the French want to do in 1918. and these get inverted in 1944-1945, at least on the Western Front, where it is the United States in World War II that has the largest army. So France, strategically, and Britain, strategically, to a certain extent, have to hew to what the American vision is. So part of that is timeless. Uh, the larger army in a coalition, the one contributing the largest resources, will always have a dominant voice. And this is true today when we look at something like NATO, where all states in the alliance contribute, but certain states contributing more resources by virtue of those resources will be able to call more shots strategically.
0: I'm going to pull out Winston Churchill here. He noted that the only thing worse than fighting with an ally is fighting without them. So, how can coalitions today unify and exert pressure needed to achieve victory?
1: Churchill's comment is a famous one, one used in some version or another down through the ages, that you need allies. The United States needs allies, of course, in order to share the burden, share expertise, share geography, be able to forward deploy, all of those things that an alliance or a coalition allows you to do. There's some debate among political scientists, historians, and strategists about whether shared values or shared interest is the best way to keep an alliance moving forward. It seems to me that at least in terms of wartime, that shared values are less important. It's possible for the United States to ally with Stalinist Russia in World War II, for example. In World War I, it's possible for Tsarist Russia to ally with Republican France uh, because they have a shared interest in common. The French national anthem even talks about cutting the heads off of kings, but you can forgive those things if you're moving in the same direction. So looking for a common interest is the key. I think this has been one of the issues why the French president, Emmanuel Macron, recently called NATO brain dead because it, it, in his mind, doesn't have that common an interest anymore with the Soviet Union gone, and it needs to redefine itself. So this is a common problem where an alliance can hold together while a war is going on, but as soon as the war is over, as the interests of the states begin to move in opposite directions, then you see them fall apart rather quickly. This happened at the end of World War One when the United States, Britain, and France had very different ideas, and Italy had very different ideas about the post-war world ought to look like. And it's, of course, true at the end of World War II, when the United States and Britain on one side and the Soviet Union on the other side saw their alliance come apart as soon as Japan was defeated in the summer of 1945.
0: It doesn't seem like an issue that's going to be resolved anytime soon.
1: No, it isn't, because states have different interests. States bring different things to the table. And we see this, if you look at a coalition like NATO right now, where the United States has different interests than Poland, it has different interests than Estonia, it has different interests than Turkey, those interests may overlap in certain places, but in other places they're going to diverge. We talk a lot in what I do for a living about the U.S. relationship with France. France has deep strategic interests in Africa because it had a former empire there and because of migration issues coming out of Africa that the United States doesn't share. It doesn't mean that the U.S. and France are not allies. It just means that they're coming at the problem from different directions.
0: Before we go, do you have any takeaways or final thoughts that you want to share about this article?
1: I think the main takeaway is always interesting to me to analyze when something was being written. And Agnew was writing in 1971 when the United States was dealing with the war in Vietnam, fundamentally without allies. Unlike the war in Korea, unlike World War II, unlike World War One, the United States was largely fighting by itself. And so it's interesting to me that his mind went back to what alliances could do. And among those things that alliances can do, they can distribute responsibility for a conflict worldwide. Uh, in the Vietnam case, that didn't happen. So the United States was fighting that war alone. And I think we learned that lesson in the Persian Gulf War in 1990, and we learned it again in Afghanistan, a little less so with Iraq. But that going to war with allies means that there is a shared alliance responsibility for a conflict. The problem is, as you noted, the more responsibility you share, the more sovereignty you also cede. It's a balancing act.
0: Absolutely. Thank you so much. Thank you. Bye-bye. Have a good one. Bye.